All right. Well, good morning, friends. My name is Hunter. I'm one of the pastors here at Providence. Welcome. If you've not been welcomed already, so glad that you're here. I'll go ahead and dismiss the rest of our Kid City kiddos to their classrooms for the rest of service as they get to have kind of age-appropriate teaching this morning. Excited for them. And can we put our hands together for all of our volunteers in Kid City? They maybe can't hear us, but we want to give a hand clap of praise this morning. We're grateful for them grateful for them. And uh, if you're a Spanish speaker or a new reality student, if you're in middle school, uh, you're welcome to stay in here uh, with us as you'll get to hear today's sermon. Um, I have the privilege of introducing this morning's speaker, and our guest speaker this morning is Dr. Brenda Salter McNeil. That's right. Go ahead. Put your hands together. In his book, The Road to Character, New York Times columnist David Brooks says that there are resume virtues, and then there are eulogy virtues. Resume virtues are the things we do in life that prove to other people that we're worth hiring for something like a job. I went to this school, I worked at this company, I accomplished this feat, and resume virtues actually matter a lot. Uh, so much so that we take six months to help our leaders here at the Cross Purpose Program uh, work on their skills and get the, the character traits that they need on their resume to get the job of their dreams. In Dr. Brenda's case, her resume virtues are pretty impressive. When it comes to education, she earned her bachelor's from Rutgers University in New Jersey, her Master of Divinity from Fuller Seminary in California, and her Doctor of Ministry from Palmer Seminary in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. For her vocation, she is a teacher, preacher, and leader in the international movement for peace and reconciliation. She also serves as an associate professor at Seattle Pacific University in Seattle, Washington, where she directs the Reconciliation Studies program. And for her accomplishments, she was featured as one of the 50 most influential women to watch by Christianity Today. And she's offered several books, including Roadmap to Reconciliation, which I got to read in college, uh, A Credible Witness, which is kind of the title of this weekend's message, The Heart of Racial Ju Justice, and her latest book, Becoming Brave, Finding the Courage to Pursue Racial Justice Now. What a title. Resume virtues are important, but eulogy virtues are indispensable. Eulogy virtues are the things that people will say about you at your funeral. Eulogy virtues are the direct reflection of the quality and character and resilience of a life lived in obedience to God. This is not a funeral, and this morning speaker has not died. Last week's speakers got COVID, so we've got to clarify. But in The Road to Character, Brooks calls leaders, uh, readers to live with the end in mind, to pursue education, pursue career, pursue advocacy and accomplishment, resume virtues. But please know this, that your eulogy virtues will be the only ones that last. And in the case of this morning speaker, her resume virtues have become her eulogy virtues. She has lived a life of obedience to God, and for that, we honor her. So I want to encourage you to lean in this moment, this morning, open your heart wide to God, grab your pen, grab your notebook, grab your Bible, and most importantly, please join me in giving a warm providence welcome to Dr. Brenda Salter McNeil. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Before I start to speak, I really want you to know that I'm honored to be with you. 
I really am honored to be with you. Uh, lots have changed over the years where travel used to be a regular thing and then COVID meant you didn't travel as much. And so being a professor, living in Seattle now, being at another at, at church, I'm on the pastoral staff there, I don't travel as much and I'm very, very selective about where I put my body. Uh, every airplane I'm on is intentional and I really want to be with you. So I'm very, very thankful. I love God with all my heart. That's the biggest thing about my resume. If you really want to know who I am, I really love God. Um, and I love you. I came yesterday uh, with Hunter and just fell in love, just, be, just fell in love. The flags, the story, um, who you are, who I've been told you are. My husband and I kind of went through your website and read all the core values and I'm smitten. <laughs> so, <clears throat> As I was sitting over there, and I'm going to watch my time and try to use it really well with you, more than anything, I'm your sister in Christ. So listen to this. I love you with the love of the Lord. Yes, I love you with the love of the Lord. I can see in you the glory of our King. And I love you with the love of the Lord. Yes, I love you with the love of the Lord. Yes, I love you with the love of the Lord. I can see in you the glory of our King. And I love you with the love of the Lord. I mean it. And so, Lord God, as I come to give my heart to these, your people, most importantly, as I come to give your heart to these, your people, speak, Lord, because we're listening. We want to hear what the Spirit has to say to the church. So God, you have our full undivided attention. Surround us with the love of God. Send us out dripping with the love of God. May the people who encounter us experience the love of God. For we ask it in Jesus' name and all God's people said, Amen. To your pastors, to all who have been involved in inviting me, know that I sincerely mean that I'm grateful to be with you. I'm good. I'm not going to drink it. Thank you. <laughs> so the sermon title, based upon the theme that you've been in, is Credibility on the Edge. Credibility on the Edge. Oh, and now that I've sang to you and all that kind of stuff, y'all are quiet. I am loud. So, <laughs> Pastor, so, so now that you know I love you, now that you know I'm your sister, and now that you know that I'm really serious, so y'all can smile and be nice, amen, you can talk out loud, that'll help me preach better, amen, I did not come to entertain you, so, so I need you, this is not a spectator sport, this thing called church, okay, it's really supposed to be this interactive, dynamic experience of being in God's presence together, amen, so when you hear the truth, bear witness to it. It, all right. So as I was thinking about what God would give me to preach, especially with this thing about the notion of the redemptive edge or what is that all about? And I've learned much more since I've been with you. But one of the things that I had to think about was how did I get pushed to the edge? 
And I can tell you that for me, I can still remember the night I became convinced that the world that our children are inheriting is radically different than the one that most of us grew up in. I was in Ferguson, Missouri. Didn't even know that I was gonna go there, but there was a group of national Christian leaders, so our resume sounded really good, and that's how we all got invited to go to Ferguson. And we were supposed to go from all different faith traditions, all different types of backgrounds, uh, various levels of experience, various areas of ministry, some administrators, some ministers in local churches, some on Christian college campuses, some from seminaries. We came from organizations that we came from all over the country and we met with young people. And I'll never forget the night that I met with these young folks uh, who were at the very start of the Black Lives Matter movement, right? And so we're in this room with them, and uh, <clears throat> they are being candid. When I was growing up, you were kind of nice around ministers. You know, a few folks had on clergy collars. So we, we knew what you're supposed to say in front of preachers. You're, you know, you're somewhat respectful. My God, that was not that night. <clears throat> that was not that night. They did not get the memo. So, so folks cussed free. Amen. And spoke candidly. And one young man said, look, we don't have a PhD in racial harmony. We're just playing the cards that's been dealt to us. And then as they kept on talking, some of these young people started talking about the civil rights movement, right? And they said, hey, this is not like the civil rights movement. And as I listened more carefully, I tried to hear what distinguished the difference for them. Unlike the civil rights movement that was led by reverends, ministers, Christians, like Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. and so many others, right? This movement wasn't being led by Christians. It wasn't being rooted or informed by the church. This was something different that was springing up. And I had to think, why not? Why isn't the church present? Why aren't they looking to people like me and others? Because our resume is so good. I feel like preaching all of a sudden. Uh, how come they're not looking to those who they used to look up to, admire, and respect? Well, this is what they said. We hate your misogyny. We hate your hypocrisy. We hate your complicity and your silence with injustice. They said, we hate how you exclude the LGBTQ plus community. They said, it looks like you work harder to keep people out of the church than to let them in. Woo! Now, Sometimes you can't say amen. All you can say is ouch. So we were like, ooh, ooh, ooh. It was hard to hear. And they didn't hold back anything. And as we left that night, we were sober-minded. We looked at them. They looked at us. They had said everything they had to say. We kind of made this promise that we were going to do better. But that night, we were convinced that we had to bridge the generational gap with young people who don't have confidence in the relevance of the church anymore. And so, that night, I began to realize that the movement we call Christianity in this season is facing a credibility gap. And it's our job in this work of reconciling to bridge the gap. And it's going to require going to the redemptive edge to do it. Do I have a witness? 
That's why I chose the text that you heard read in your hearing this morning from John chapter 4. You see, in this text, we have Jesus embodying what it looks like to go to the redemptive edge. In this text, Jesus encounters a Samaritan woman who grew up in a society that discriminated against her because of her race and because of her gender. She knows what it's been, what it feels like to be on the edge. She knows what it feels like to be ostracized and pushed out and not centered. She knows the feeling of being talked about and, and, and kept out of the mainstream of making decisions. She knows what it means to be marginalized. You see, Samaritans were considered half-breed dogs. And they were considered that because they were the products of interracial marriage. There's a long story behind the Old Testament and how the Samaritans came as a result of the Assyrians and the Israelites, and I won't give you all the details, but as that narrative grew, and as it was justified more and more that these people were not like us, no self-respecting Jew would be caught dead associating with Samaritans. They didn't worship together. They didn't live in the same neighborhoods together. Their kids didn't uh, interact with one another. Sound familiar to any of us? They lived over there, and we lived over here. They worshiped there, and we worshiped here. And never did the twain meet. So now, this Samaritan woman finds herself not just having to grapple with the fact that she's Samaritan, she's a woman. So not only is she born in the wrong cultural class and race, she's the wrong gender, a woman. Women in that culture were considered property. You were either the property of your father or your husband. And your purpose in life was to, anybody got a guess? Bear children, amen, thank you in the back. Y'all can work a little harder. Give me just a, just a little bit more energy. <laughs> and I'm not gonna stop. Y'all invited me, so I'm gonna be like this the entire time, amen. <laughs> so the work of women was to do what? have children and that was your purpose you didn't go to synagogue you weren't taught to read the Torah you were asked to learn something at home but you weren't in spaces where decision-making authority was given to you and if you couldn't have children that would be reason for a divorce so this woman finds herself in this place where she's not just Samaritan but she's female and your goal was to have children and hopefully male children because males would have more status in the society than a woman. That's why devout Jews would pray prayers like this. Lord, I thank you that I was not born a slave, an imbecile, or a woman. Can you imagine going into the temple and having somebody pray out loud? I'm glad I'm not born that. That stuff hurts after a while. It begins to shape one's sense of perspective and begins to lower a person's self-esteem. And this woman has the double whammy of being a Samaritan and a woman. Can you imagine what that does to a person's sense of self-worth? Can you imagine what that does over time to a person's sense of identity? And the Bible doesn't make sense unless we put ourselves in that story. 
We can't read it like, and the Samaritan woman came to the well. Oh, please. <laughs> we have got to live into that thing and say, if I was in that situation, what would it feel like to every single day of your life to have a message somewhere, somehow, that says unclean, unworthy, all day, every day, 24 hours a day. Because if we don't ask those questions, we won't understand her story. And we won't be able to connect our story to hers. And that's why I came. I want to suggest that our story is very, very relevant to what we're reading here today. You see, she started to try to deal with the negative messages that was telling her that she wasn't worthy by trying to look for love in all the wrong places. When you're told that you're nothing, you look for ways to try to feel like you could be something to someone. She didn't believe that people would keep their word because after a while she discovered after being married five times, and I told you, you could be divorced. Women didn't divorce men, men divorced women. You could be divorced for things like being infertile, not being able to have children, or having a physical abnormality that wasn't uh, seen prior to your being disrobed. And a person just had to take you into a public square and say out loud in front of a host of people, I divorce you, I divorce you, I divorce you, I divorce you. And now you're a woman in a society and you have no connection to where, how you feed yourself and how you stay housed. And five times someone said, I do, and five times they didn't. And so people's credibility is gone with her. She's done with the platitudes. She's done with the false promises. She's done. And that's why she comes to the well at 12 o'clock noon. Who goes to, 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 to go to the well to bring back water at 12 o'clock in the, in the afternoon? Who does that? I've been to countries where people go to the well to get water, but they go early in the morning. Somebody knows what I'm talking about. Or late in the evening in the cool of the day. Who goes to the well to lug water and bring a jug back? At 12 noon, the hottest time of the day in desert sun. I feel like preaching. She does it. That's exactly right. She don't want to see nobody at that well. She's picking a time that she's almost assured that nobody should be there. She doesn't want to see anybody. She doesn't want to see her own people, let alone a Jew. Can you imagine what this woman feels like when she gets to that well? She done lugged this jug up here to this well trying to get sustenance for the day because you can't live in a climate like that and not have access to water. But she doesn't want to see the stairs. She doesn't want to hear the comments behind her back. She doesn't want to see the, the people who walk away when she approaches. She can't handle it. She's had enough of it. And so she gets up to the well and she's caught off guard because she can't, she can't imagine what is this guy doing up here at this well at this time of day. Where, what? 
She doesn't expect to see anybody. And here comes Jesus. I, I feel like I want to take a little side right quick. Ain't he wonderful? Because you can do your best to avoid God. You can, uh, you can do your best. You can come at a time that you don't think he's going to be there. You can decide. We know he's supposed to come on Sunday. That's why we do right. Amen. That's why we show up, dress right, talk right. Oh, but God will show up on the day you least expect him. Amen. I love him. He'll surprise you. When you don't think he's supposed to be there, my God, you'll be in the grocery store, turn the corner, and here comes Jesus. What you, what you do? You at the party and you just going in and you, what you doing? <laughs> but what I love is, and, and why I think we dress up and get right on Sunday because we feel like we have to show ourselves a certain way for Jesus to like us. But what I'm starting to learn about God, God just loves us we are created in the image of God and we're good enough. We don't have to do anything more. We don't have to put on the facades. We can just be who we are. Fearfully and wonderfully made. Image bearers who've been through stuff. Every single one of us in one form or the other. And Jesus doesn't shy away. Jesus doesn't avoid us. Jesus comes exactly to where we hang out. And so Jesus comes to that well, and what I love about this story is that he doesn't come down on her. She, she assumes that people are going to despise her and diminish her and discriminate against her. That's why she doesn't want to see anybody. But instead, when she gets there, Jesus doesn't destroy her dignity, and he doesn't try to start to evangelize her. Amen. He doesn't tell her about all the things she's done wrong. Later in the story, we're going to hear about the many times she's been married, but Jesus doesn't start with that. Jesus starts with the request out of a need that he has for her. That's good news. That's good news. Jesus doesn't approach from place of power. Somebody say power. Ah, instead, Jesus comes in through the, through the door of plain humanity. Jesus comes in through vulnerability. Instead, Jesus says to her, would you give me a drink? You see, he, he, she's shocked now. She, she's stammering now. She's, she's caught off guard now, for real. You see, the further insult about this question, which really makes her want to put her hand on her hip, I can see her, right? Because I told you that Samaritans were discriminated against and women were discriminated against, but when you were a Samaritan and a woman, they came together in another discriminatory practice. You see, the Pharisees, who thought we didn't have enough laws, amen, so, you know, good religious folks will give you another thing that you must do, and the Pharisees considered that Samaritan women were perpetual menstruants. Now, this meant, in the Old Testament, it says that when a person was bleeding, somehow was injured and bleeding, you weren't to touch them because it would make you unclean. So people who had been injured in some way or bleeding in some way were not to somehow t contaminate other people. And they were removed until the wound was healed. But when you are perpetual, yes. that means you're never clean. 
You're never good enough for somebody to sit next to you to touch you. When your dress or your skirt or something touches another person, they are instantly defiled by your presence if you're a Samaritan woman. There's never a day from the time you're a little girl to a gray-haired woman that you are clean enough to be around other people. Nobody drinks from your cup if you're a Samaritan woman. Not one Jew wants you to give them water. Look at Jesus. Do y'all see this? Isn't this fascinating? From the surface level, it looks like a thirsty person just saying, yo, can I have some water? But from a deep and more profound level, Jesus is changing the narrative of her life. I really am. <laughs> Jesus is doing something here. His going to the edge called Samaria, where no other self-respecting Jew would dare go, is changing the story. It's giving us a new story. It's showing us what's supposed to happen when you take the risk to go to the edge. Ah, good God. She's shocked. And she's suspicious. And she's indignant. Because she knows the narrative that's about her. What do you mean you want water? How can you, a Jew, ask me for water? Don't you know, I'm not sure where you've been, but Jews don't associate with Samaritans, let alone drink from what they drink from. Who are you? How do you not know these segregating laws? Jesus understands her skepticism, and so do I. Jesus understands her her unwillingness to trust folks who say they know God because even rabbis and people that we thought would embody truth don't. And so she's, she's not having it. I see her hand on her hip. I don't know if you do. How can you, a Jew, ask me for water? Jesus doesn't get taken aback by what's happening. In fact, he says to her, which is so interesting to me, if you knew who was speaking to you, you would ask him and he'd give you living water. Now, how interesting. He said, oh, 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 you think this water in the well is the only kind of water here? I, I hear you, you're right, I don't have a bucket and I do need your help. There is a power differential here. And generally, a man would come and he'd have the power. If he wanted to take the bucket, he could have taken it from her, right? Ah, he, he could have said as a Jew or a Pharisee, he could have just come and done the prophetic thing and made her feel bad. He could have said, you've been married five times. And she's, oh, wow, you're a prophet. And that would have changed the differential. The power would have been on his side. She would have said, oh, I can tell you're a prophet. And now she's just a peon and he's a prophet. He does none of that he does none of that he doesn't start with the four spiritual laws he doesn't start with how you ought to come to church he doesn't start right he doesn't start with you need to come to Jesus your life is messed up and you ought to get it together no he starts by saying I need you and I understand your skepticism about me and everybody my body represents I get it. 
But even though he understands, he's not going to let that be the end of the story. He's saying there's something else that could happen here. Something that's life-giving. Something that could literally cause you to feel alive again. You've been slugging this bucket up here by yourself because on the outside you're alive, but on the inside you feel dead. You've been disappointed too many times. You've been hurt way too much, but I could give you living water. And she's intrigued now. Now, at one point, she's ready to say, get out of here. And she says, hey, yo, what, what? Where do you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob who drank from this well, he and his sons, his flocks and his herds? Who are you that you have this thing that doesn't come from here? What is this? Now, wouldn't it be wonderful if we were the kinds of Christians that people wanted to ask us more? Wouldn't that be lovely that if what we offered was so interesting, so intriguing, that people would follow us and say, tell me more about that. That, that what is that? Living water. And she's now interested. She was blowing him off just 10 minutes ago. But now she's interested and she says, hey, give me this water. So I won't have to keep coming here to draw water. People who are thirsty know that they are. And they've been tired of the bait and switches that lead to nothing. But if somebody actually has living water, I believe there's a world waiting on us to offer it to them. And so as I got to this place in the story, I couldn't wait to get to church with you. Because I wanted to tell you, do you see what Jesus is doing here? Do you see what's happening through this encounter with a Samaritan woman? Jesus is embodying your core value of what it looks like to go to the redemptive edge. Somebody say redemptive edge, just for my sake. Redemptive edge, say it again. The redemptive edge. And so I thought this was just the name of your little conference. Amen. And so I thought, oh, that's so nice. But then I came in here yesterday. Somebody say yesterday. And I was walking in this little church minding my own business and I saw your core values on the wall. I went, oh, this is not just a slogan. This is their core value for them. And so I went on your website, amen, help me out, Brother Hunter. And I said, oh, Hudson, this is what they believe. Your core value about redemptive edge is that you believe that Jesus followed the heart of God for humanity beyond the familiar edges of comfort, privilege, and power into the beautiful obscurity of the margins. Oh, that thing of <laughs> Good God. Beyond the moral facade of the outwardly religious and the condescending, condescending scorn of the privileged elite, Christ cultivated an upside down ethic where the weak were powerful. Samaritan woman. Mm -hmm, where the weak were powerful, the poor were rich, and the last were first feel like it <laughs> it's where he still works today and where he bids his followers to join him as he provides a voice to the voiceless freedom to the captives and retribution to the abused Good God Almighty, that 
that's your core value? Sign me. I want to go to that church. That's what you are about. This text is your story. This is what you want to do. This is at the core of who you are. That's why God sent me by here. Amen. I would have still been in Seattle if I wasn't supposed to come and remind you of who you are. That's my purpose for being in this place. To remind you of who you are. So as followers of Jesus, we are called to go to the redemptive edge to win back our credibility with young people who have given up on the church. I believe that. Why young people? This generation is experiencing something that no generation prior to them has had to go through quite like this. The combination of uncertainty and feeling out of control that has come with the pandemic, where school stopped, being with friends stopped, knowing who you could be around or who you shouldn't be around, all of that became tenuous and scary and unknown. Mass shootings, you don't know. School okay? Church okay? Synagogue okay? Mall okay? That is traumatic. And still I got to go and try to get good grades. This generation is looking for people who understand the complexities that they're dealing with. And they are global whether they like it or not. TikTok takes them to China instantaneously. There's, there's so much information and in trying to figure out who's telling the truth. When you're looking at a person who's a political figure, caught red-handed and still says, no, I didn't, that's very confusing. <laughs> Is it not? At least at one point, if, if the preacher or the, the pastor or the politician or the parent got caught, they would say, yes, yeah, son, I'm so sorry. I, sweetie, I'm sorry. But no, we don't get the I'm sorry anymore. They just lie. Can you imagine being a teenager trying to figure all this out? And then you see the church not say nothing. They've got this global diversity happening all around them, whether they want it or not. And they're trying to figure out what does it mean to be a part of this generation. And they're looking for more than kumbaya. You see what the church, and I do this with all respect, but the church has almost seemed like if we get enough people in the same room who are diverse, we're reconciled. But they're out there watching a 12-year-old get shot to death in your city, and they're wondering, where do Christians fit into this story? Where are they? Reconciliation is more than diversity in a room. Reconciliation is more than multi-ethnicity. Reconciliation deals with systems and structures. Reconciliation said, if that was my son, I've got two young adults and I adore them. <laughs> they went to Las Vegas for a concert this weekend and they're with friends, but mom is worried the whole time. And I pray for them constantly. 
And I would hope that if anything ever happened to any of our loved ones, that we would all rally. Because what love says is not kumbaya, but if you march and I'm marching, if it's your baby, it's my baby. If it's your school, it's my school. If it's your church, it's my church. I'll be there. I'll do for you what I want someone to do for me. That's what I'm looking for. And until we start to have reconciliation that actively involves with the systems and structures that are destroying people's lives, this generation has had it. If you look at research, young folks have given up on church. I told you I adore my two, and they don't really like it that much. They like me, thank God. <laughs> and if I'm preaching, because they live in California, they'll, they'll zoom in. But they're not like, oh gosh, I got to be in church. Something's shifting. Are you all hearing me today? And I hope you know that I'm saying this from the bottom of my heart. We've got to fix something because what young people are saying, reconciliation is out. Reparations are in. And we've got to show them that those two things are not mutually exclusive. They go together. So what did Jesus do? How did Jesus reclaim credibility on the edge? Well, he did some really powerful things that I think instruct us on how we might move forward. First of all, he goes to the well. Amen. As opposed to hoping that he's going to meet a Samaritan woman in his neighborhood, he goes to her neighborhood. Amen. He leaves his comfort zone and he's like, well, and it's so interesting to me because verse 4 says now he had to go through Samaria. Did Jews have to go through Samaria? No. No Jew had to go through Samaria. That's how it got me started writing the book. The very first line, now he had to. No, they didn't. That's why we have Samaritan hospitals all over the place, good Samaritans, because the good Samaritan was a good Samaritan who helped a Jew who was avoiding Samaria like every other Jew did. As opposed to taking the straight route, they would go around the curvaceous mountainous roads to avoid being around people like us. And one man who knew this guy got robbed because he was trying to avoid people that looked just like him stopped and helped him. That was the good Samaritan. And so when Jesus says he had to go, I go, no, you didn't, Jesus. I mean, all due respect, but you didn't have to. <laughs> and then I saw the scripture that said, I've come to do the will of my father. So Jesus makes it crystal clear that he's not motivated by what other people are motivated by, and neither can we. There has to be this internal mandate from God that says, everybody else might not show up, but I got to show up. Everybody else might not say anything, but I got to say something. Everybody else might not care, but I have to care because my purpose is to do the will of my father. And so Jesus makes it clear that he's intentionally going into Samaria. And for us who want to have credibility on the edge, we will have to intentionally find ourselves on the 
edge. And we won't have to mistakenly get there. We might not be able, you, we have to say, all right, I'm scared to death. I'm going over here. I don't know what I'm going to do. I don't know if I can help anybody, but I'm going to come over here and stand over here to show somebody that I understand this is more than me liking you and you liking me. So we're going to go over here and we're going to demonstrate that God cares. We're going to put our faith in action. Somebody say faith in action. That's one of the things I see Jesus showing us. We have to. This cannot be optional. It'll look different for different people, but something is supposed to make us care enough to do something and to go where the pain and the problem is. And then I see this. He knows that the Samaritan woman is going to be skeptical about interacting with the Jew. So he goes there intentionally and she's not happy. So he starts by not coming in as powerful or prideful or religious. He comes in thirsty. <laughs> he comes in needing something, validating that everybody has something to offer. Amen. Even these little knuckleheads that we don't like, we just feel like, baby, pull up your pants. Got something to offer. In a small gesture, Jesus changes the power dynamics and he gives her agency. You have something to offer. You are not worthless. You have a worldview that I don't have. You have a life experience I don't understand. You know this neighborhood. I don't. I can tell you something. One night I was lost in the subway in Chicago. I got off the train underground at the wrong place, and, 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 and I thought I could go into this door that would take me to the train station, but it was locked. And, and when I came out, I had six men sitting on the steps that led to the upper level, and I was like, God almighty. Now these brothers are down here under this little subway thing. It's dark under here. I got these brothers standing on the sitting on the steps. I think they're getting high. Jesus, Jesus, precious Jesus. So my hood training said, go away from them and walk confidently. So I am walking like I got smack. I'm like, don't mess with me. And I almost walked onto Lakeshore Drive where cars were coming and going and just about got hit. One brother jumped up off the steps and said, yo, baby, where you going? Where you going? Come back here. Come back. You're going to get hit. So now I have to be humble. So I done made every stereotype in my mind about these brothers on, on these steps. And he, said, and, and he said, baby girl, where you going? Where you going? And I said, when I got on the train, I was having the wrong track. <laughs> I got on the train, I was trying to go. Where are you trying to go? I said, I'm trying to get to the L train. And you know, I got to get on the blue. Okay, the blue line. All right. Well, listen, you got to go up these steps. Go across the street. Don't go on this side. Go across. His name is Spencer. I've never seen Spencer since that night. But that night, I learned something about my belief about what people have to offer. Those guys respected me. One guy said, you're so pretty. I said, thank you. <laughs> thank you. Spencer gave me directions about how to get on the train that would take me home. I've never seen him since, but I've never forgotten his name. And now I know that if I'm lost someplace and I'm looking for something, if I ask a person who's on the street where something is, they know. And there's dignity in it. You see, everybody's got something to offer, and that's what Jesus does when he comes to this woman at the well. He honors her humanity by asking for something she has the capacity to give. And everybody has the capacity to give. 
He also knows he's taking a risk because hurt people hurt people. And when you've been hurt long enough, even if the person's heart is right and mean right, it can be too much for you. And you just feel like, you know what? I am done trying to help folks. No, you can't have no water. I mean, I can understand how, how she was done. She's ostracized by Jews, and she's, she's sarcastic now. She's through. How dare you? And we're going to get some of that. So don't take this as a, 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 a fluffy, you know, good, feel-good sermon. No, when we go to the edge, we're going to meet people who are edgy. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> and they're not having it. Now, I thank God for Spencer. Lord bless him wherever he is. But I'm here to tell you that not everybody is going to be nice and kind. Yes, everybody has the capacity to, but some folks have had enough. And they're just done. So there are no guarantees that people will be happy to see us when we go to the redemptive edge. Many young people will question our motives. You see, so like Jesus, we got to know that we have something living to offer and be able to offer it as humbly as we can after we've recognized our need for their help. And Jesus basically says with respect and dignity, he doesn't shame her, he doesn't embarrass her. He basically says, I get it. I get why you wouldn't want to talk to me. But if you knew who I was, if you knew where I went to church, if you knew what I'm trying to do, you'd ask me, and I promise I'd give you living water. And she's now taken enough by, you got what? Something that's life-giving? Everything around me takes life. You have something that gives life? And we do. And so, my brothers and sisters and siblings in Christ, I'm convinced that God wants people to flourish. Everybody. I'm convinced of it. And I'm convinced that reconciliation is supposed to be about that. I had to write a definition of reconciliation because I was in a conference with leaders from all over the country and none of us made the, meant the same thing by that one word. For me, reconciliation is the ongoing spiritual process that involves forgiveness, repentance, and justice that transforms broken relationships and systems to reflect God's original intention for all creation to flourish. I believe that. I'm living for that. I'm trying to do that. So I'm not trying to have a kumbaya party. I'm not trying to sway from side to side and sink, we shall overcome. I'm trying to give my life for something that looks like the kingdom of God and cares about the issues that are causing people not to reach their full God-given potential. And I believe that this generation needs to see us do it. So let me hurry up and close this sermon. But I do mean it. That's why we've got to speak up and stand up with this generation about racial justice issues like immigration and mass incarceration, gun control, fair housing, education reform, economic exploitation, racial profiling, over-policing in specific communities, and the death of too many unarmed African-American people. We cannot just send our thoughts and prayers, church. We've got to demonstrate that if that was my child, this is what I would want somebody to do. And all I'm saying is that I don't know a 12-year-old, me included, that wasn't stupid. Do you know 12-year-olds who don't do stuff that they shouldn't do that make stupid decisions? Because we're 12. 
kids should not be shot dead because they're 12 and stupid. They just shouldn't. And we should say that. We should say that. This is what it looks like to go to the Redemptive Edge Church, to be God's people who are committed to reconciliation. I'm on a crusade. I'm trying to get us from being this multicultural, multi-ethnic and stopping there. I'm trying to say we start there because that's how we become family. But then we do for the family what we want somebody to do for our biological family. It's got to go there. It's got to go there. What you march about, I march about. And so let me tell you how the time ended in Ferguson. We promised those kids we're going to do better. Amen. We came out repentant. After they cussed us out, we got better. And we just, <laughs> we just, we're so sorry. We're going to do better. We're going to do better. The next day, the next day, uh, we were in a meeting and we got a text. And the text was from them. The text came because, and this will give you a sense of when this happened, the verdict not to indict the police officers who strangled Eric Garner when he said 11 times, I can't breathe. We were in Ferguson when the decision not to indict those police officers came back. And that day, those young people sent us a text and basically called us to put up or shut up. This is what they said. We are going to meet on the steps of the federal court building at 4 o'clock today. Are you coming or not? I think that's the question for the church. Are you coming or not? Now, I didn't want to go. I didn't. I'm not advanced in marching. Amen. I'm not advanced in, I mean, I'm not advanced in the whole thing. I was scared. But we knew that if we didn't show up physically with our bodies, everything that we had done the night before was over. So do any of you know who Shane Claiborne is? Shane Claiborne was there. Now, Shane is a marcher. So Shane knew he had to go to the airport. He brought a suitcase to the, to the protest. <laughs> In the middle of the protest, pulling a roller bag. No justice, no peace. I'm like, really, Shane? <laughs> really, Shane? When I saw Mennonites, little old lady Mennonites, holding a white sheet that said Black Lives Matter. And they just stood there in their little white dress with that white sheet that said black. And they stood there in solidarity the whole night. That was the way they showed up. Some of the young people had to take me under their wing. They said, Dr. Brenda, do you have your license? And I said, no, 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 I left it. Oh, no, you have to have ID in case you get arrested. Oh, get arrested. We're going to get arrested. We're going to get arrested. So, 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 that, so they said, go back to the car and get, get, your, get, get some form of ID. And here's the phone number. If you get arrested, call us here. Now they're giving me the phone number to find them. So Lord have mercy. Then they said, did you bring water? Water, water. Why you bring water? Well, they have tear gas. You got to be able to wipe, wash your eyes out. I was, oh, oh, I was a rookie, saints. I was a rookie. This is not on my resume. I was a rookie. Them children took me under their wings and helped me march. Tears rolled down my face. I cried the entire time. I was pitiful. Bless her heart. A young lady, I didn't know I was going to tell you all this, but a young lady came by me. She had on a little red beanie hat. She, she saw me crying. She took my hand, put her hand over my hand like this, took my fist and pushed it in the 
there and she said from Ferguson to Palestine she was a Palestinian young student who went to school at the college wash you and she was basically saying what you are fighting here we're fighting there from Ferguson to Palestine it literally changed my life and so this is what I want to say to you all, and then I want to pray for us. I believe that this is the moment. I believe that we're in a Kairos moment. I literally do. And I believe that this generation is waiting for us. They don't want to hear any songs we sing. They don't want to hear any sermons I preach. They want to see what we do. And so I pray that as Christians, we will dare to live into our core value that you will dare to live into your core value and go to the redemptive edge. And I hope that you'll meet young people where they are. And as you do, I pray that the credibility of the church in this generation will be restored. And my prayer is that we too will be transformed in the process. Something about us will change. I've never been the same since. Becoming brave came after my experience in Ferguson because I say what I mean now and I mean what I say because young kids on the street helped me to figure out how to find my voice and to speak up for what I believe. And so my prayer for us is that when you get your call to come to the redemptive edge and it'll come and it'll look different for each of us but the question that they asked us is the question that I ask you. Are you coming or not? I pray your answer will be yes. I'll say yes, Lord, yes, to your will and to your way. I'll say yes, Lord, yes, I will trust you and obey. When your spirit speaks to me, with my whole heart I'll agree. And my answer will be yes, Lord, yes. That's my prayer in Jesus' name and all God's people said together.